Hey, welcome back to the Journal Feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to be spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. Here, our team combs through the literature for the best articles that you don't have to, and then provides expert summaries no bigger than a spoonful so that you can keep up with the ever-changing landscape of acute care medicine. If you feel like you should be rewarded for your time listening to or reading the journal feed, we offer CME credits through a partnership with Hippo Education. All the details for that are at our website at journalfeed.org. Now then, for a quick look ahead, let's look at everything that we're going to be covering. First off, keeping low tidal volumes in the emergency room. Next, going overboard on fluids in the ICU. After that, big old jetliners in the times of COVID. Then 2019 in review, the big take-home studies from that year. And finally, how often are we nailing those ECG diagnoses? This, of course, is the audio version of the past week's summaries, which this week were brought to you by the courageous Clay Smith. So the first article for this week was titled Lung Protective Ventilation and Associated Outcomes and Costs Among Patients Receiving Invasive Mechanical Ventilation in the Emergency Department out of the journal CHEST. The way that your body applies ventilatory pressures compared to how a ventilator does it is actually pretty different. And so as a result, we've discovered that it's really not that hard to cause significant damage to lung tissues from poorly optimized ventilatory parameters. So we already know that the ARDSnet lung protective ventilation strategies work and work pretty well to improve patient outcomes. But most of these patients aren't going to stay around in the ER for that long. So does it really matter if we start lung protective ventilation right away after intubation? Or can we just let those guys in the ICU figure it out? This was a retrospective study from eight emergency departments totaling about 4,200 patients, from which 2,400 received lung protective ventilation defined as less than 8 milligrams per kilo as the tidal volume. The primary outcome in the study was in-hospital mortality, which was decreased in those receiving lung protective ventilation from the get-go with an adjusted odds ratio of 0.91. So let's say 9% lower odds of death just from adjusting a few knobs. I'd call that cost-effective. Besides that, there were also important secondary outcomes such as a lower number of ventilatory days, fewer days in hospital, and given those things, not surprisingly, lower costs. Something nice about this study is that it took all comers who were intubated in the emergency department and then transferred to the ICU, many of which did not have lung injury as the reason for their intubation, but still, they were benefiting from lung protective strategies. So, in a spoonful, initial settings matter. Starting low tidal volumes in the emergency department is associated with lower mortality and overall better outcomes. And next, the second article, which was titled Fluid Overload and Mortality in Adult Critical Care Patients, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis of Observational Trials out of the Journal of Critical Care Medicine. In the not-so-distant past, pumping critically ill patients full of fluids was essentially dogma. Thankfully, we've become a lot more thoughtful about it. And now keep in mind that nearly all of this fluid will actually leak out of the vascular space within just about an hour. And so giving too much fluids has already been linked to many poor outcomes. Things like kidney function loss, prolonged ventilation, and increased mortality. This study was a systematic review and meta-analysis of observational trials looking into the topic of fluid overload in critically ill patients. Their focus was mortality at 72 hours, which was associated with either fluid overload defined as greater than 5% weight gain or positive cumulative fluid balance, which was just meaning that they put in more than came out. For the primary outcome of fluid overload, there was an adjusted risk ratio of 8.83. That's pretty high, even if it's just based on one study. 
and for positive cumulative fluid balance, combining four studies, there was an adjusted risk ratio of 1.44. So a little extra fluids isn't that bad, but still definitely does some harm. Eight combined studies were able to demonstrate a 19% greater risk of mortality for each excess liter of fluids. The secondary outcome of mortality at any time point, not just at 72 hours, was also significantly higher. So of course, no study is perfect, and indeed many of these results were based on retrospective studies with a risk of confounding by indication, since sicker patients are going to get more fluids. Either way though, logically this makes sense. Too much fluids is quite literally too much. In a spoonful confirmation of what we already knew, excess IV fluids is associated with higher mortality in critically ill patients. Now, the third article titled Risk of COVID-19 During Air Travel at the JAMA. Normally, we don't cover things like this, since this was actually a patient information page from the JAMA. But safety of air travel is important to all of us, so let's hear what they had to say. At this point, we're quite confident that COVID-19 is spread primarily by respiratory droplets, which is something of an oversimplification, I know, but let's just stick with broad strokes. One of the things that many people have been scared of since the very beginning has been transmission on public transport. But very few forms of public transport are as mindfully designed as aircrafts. So what's the risk on an airplane? So far, globally, there have only been 42 cases of known COVID-19 infection related to air travel. Now that's a tiny number when you compare it to the 0.3% transmission rate on high-speed trains in China, accounting for 2,300 infections on its own. In an airplane, airflow is specifically designed to flow from overhead vents down into the air return system that's at floor level. 50% of the input air is from outside, and the rest is recirculated air that is passed through a HEPA filter. By this method, the entire cabin air volume is actually turned over every two to three minutes in modern planes. So because of these systems, it's not likely to transmit COVID-19 between rows, since airflow doesn't tend to flow in that direction. Further risk reduction methods are of course in place, and the ones that you're quite familiar with by now. This includes masks, temperature and symptom screening, disinfection, hand washing, and physical distancing where possible. So keep taking all those steps that you're already familiar with, and keep in mind that maybe the best air for you to be breathing is what comes out of that little personal vent that you get in an airplane. But of course, washing your hands and not touching your face is still going to be paramount. In a spoonful, if you have to travel, rest assured, flying is still probably the safest way to travel. And then we have the fourth article, which was titled Critical Care Literature 2019 out of the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. Keeping up with the stream of published literature is like drinking from a fire hose, as you've no doubt noticed. And trying to tell what's important and what's not is a struggle. I'm sure it's part of the reason why you're here listening to this. These authors selected 11 published studies from 2019 to highlight them as the most important. And you'll be heartened to hear that the journal feed covered all but one of them already. We'll just do big take-home points from each of these studies, so get ready for a big knowledge blast here. First, they chose the Andromeda shock trial, which showed us no difference in all-cause 28-day mortality between patients who received a peripheral perfusion resuscitation strategy versus a lactate-guided strategy. Those in the perfusion-guided group got less fluids, which we just reinforced was a good thing, and had less organ dysfunction. Next, they chose the sensor trial, 
showing that shock control and resolution were more common in patients randomized to the norepinephrine infusion compared to just getting placebo. There is no difference in 28-day mortality, but there was lower incidence of pulmonary edema and arrhythmias with norepinephrine. After that, the Citrus Ali trial, showing that vitamin C cocktails don't seem to help with sepsis still. There were more specific outcomes, but I'm just going to leave it at that. Then there was Casedol, which showed that the use of bag mass ventilation during the interval between RSI medication administration and laryngoscopy resulted in a higher oxygenation saturation and lower incidence of severe hypoxemia compared with those who did not receive bag mass ventilation. Then we had the COMPARE trial, which showed no difference in composite primary outcomes for cardiovascular collapse in patients who received IV fluids during RSI compared to patients who did not receive IV fluids. Then from the ICU ROCKS investigators, as well as the Australia and New Zealand Intensive Care Society clinical trials groups, there was no significant difference in ventilatory free days at day 28 for patients treated with conservative oxygen therapy approach compared with usual care. Then Kepuridol, no significant difference between levetiracetam, valproic acid, and phosphenitoin to terminate seizures and improve responsiveness at 60 minutes in patients with status epilepticus. The CRASH-3 trial, no significant difference in the primary outcome of 28-day head injury associated in-hospital mortality among patients who received TXA compared to placebo. A significant difference in the primary outcome was found, though, in a pre-specified subgroup analysis of patients with mild to moderate TBIs. Then, Lemke's et al. No significant difference in 90-day survival in patients randomized to immediate angiography compared to those who received delayed angiography for patients with NSTEMIs. After that, Lascaroux et al., Favorable neurological survival at 90 days was higher in patients who received moderate hypothermia, that's 33 degrees Celsius, compared to those who received normothermia after cardiac arrest in non-chockable rhythms. And finally, the last article, Gunnarsson et al., showed that implementation of an emergency department-based ICU led to a reduction of 38-day mortality and decreased ICU admissions for critically ill emergency department patients. Ooh, okay, in a spoonful. 2019 feels like it was forever ago, but a lot of important research still came out of it. Here's to trying to keep it all straight and properly applied to your practice. Now the fifth article, which was titled Accuracy of Physician Electrocardiogram Interpretations, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis out of JAMA Internal Medicine. Quick and accurate ECG interpretation is a core emergency physician skill. Busier sites may see dozens of ECGs handed to you each shift. Unfortunately, computers still can't be trusted to catch everything, so your eyes are still valuable commodities. But how good are doctors at this crucial skill? This was a systematic review of 78 studies to determine the accuracy of physician ECG interpretations. The pooled median accuracy of all levels, that includes medical students and residents, was 54% pre-training and 67% if they received training. That's not too hot. Now, among only practicing physicians, pre-training accuracy was only 69%. However, they were able to get that up to 81% with training. If we look at cardiologists alone, who are supposed to, of course, be the experts, then thankfully they did a little bit better in this group at 75% and up to 88% with training. But this study has quite a few caveats. Among the studies included, there is a wide variation in physician accuracy as well as how interpretation skills were actually tested. 
And how they're assessed is, of course, a major limitation. Most tests are made up ad hoc, and there isn't like a reference standard of ECGs to assess competency with, unfortunately. Also, most ECG tests tend to be on the order of about 10 questions, which is quite short and really lacks precision. Even with these caveats, though, the message is still a clear one, and that's to check your ego at the door. Reading ECGs is difficult, but training can improve your performance. Don't neglect your skills. Purposeful and perfect practice makes perfect. In a spoonful, there's room for improvement in our ECG skills, and training helps. So that was all the articles for today. Let's do a quick review of everything that we covered. From the first article, even if you expect your patient to be quickly whisked away to the ICU, starting lung protective ventilation right away after intubation still has significant effects on mortality. Then from the second article, think twice about reaching for another bag of fluids in your critically ill patients. The old adage that you gotta swell to get well simply isn't true. Third, air travel is fairly safe, even in a pandemic. Fourth, journal feed seems to be doing a good job of keeping you up to date on important articles. Consider leaving a five-star review. And fifth, keep working on reading those ECGs. Studies show us that we are far less than 100% accurate. Links to all the articles summarized can be found at journalfeed.org, where if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email. Our goal here is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding, and so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research one spoonful at a time. Thank you.